Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. So let me just hit record here. I'm going to put my, head- in progress. put my headphones on as well. Okay, can you hear me? Yes, I hear you very well. Yeah. Great. So... I wanted to start with something I heard about you. <laughs> I don't know if it's true or not or if I misheard it, but did Possibly. you, <laughs> yeah, were you a graffiti artist before you studied architecture? <laughs> now, Matthew, that's an unexpected question. Um... I'm Matthew Blunderfield and you're listening to Scaffold. In this episode, I speak with Yab Flores, who, along with Sandra Naus and Flores van der Poel, founded the architectural practice Monadnock in Rotterdam in 2006. The practice takes its name from an enigmatic office building constructed in Chicago in the 1890s. Designed in two parts by two different firms, the Monadnock building invites manifold interpretations, slowly revealing its complexity. It's no coincidence that the buildings designed by Monadnock, the practice, could be described in much the same way, with each delivering a visual thrill that masks nuanced layers of meaning. I met with Yab over Zoom in early December 2021, and we covered a lot of ground, including his early days as a graffiti artist, the value of emulation as a means of aesthetic discovery, and how architecture is to sustain itself within an increasingly digital culture. And now, here's the interview. I hope you enjoy it. I I I actually only mentioned this once um, during um, I think uh, the talk with um, uh, Andrew uh, Clancy. Um, right. Okay. So this so this was in an interview you did with Andrew for the Register podcast. And uh, I don't know why I said it. Oh. I think it was because uh, I found out that uh, a good friend of mine uh, has a similar history. Uh, that's Oliver Lutyens. That's right. Um, and uh, I actually uh, never really um, pushed it forward um, as something uh, important. Um, but uh, ever since he mentioned this, we started... Uh, uh, to have a conversation about it uh, with a lot of fun and jokes about how it was when you were young doing graffiti. Mm. I just want to, I kind of want to revisit that period of your life and understand what, what exactly you were thinking as you were doing that kind of work or what drew you to graffiti as an artistic practice. Mm -hmm. Well, let me first, start with uh, saying that um, I was drawing and drawing and drawing all the time uh, as a kid. Um, So for me, it seemed um, quite, um, well, the the difference didn't seem that big 
using paper, largest sheets of paper, then also starting to paint on the, the wall of your, uh, with a brush, the wall of your room. And then you would also go on <laughs> into, <laughs> the, into the corridor. And then at a certain moment, the shed in the back of the garden, and then you would go into the alley. So it's just in a very natural way. And indeed, my parents also gave me uh, space for that. Um, um, uh, yeah, developed. And then um, I know, and then I saw there the, this movie, uh, Star Wars. Uh, it was, I think, uh, 1984. And uh, that made quite an impression because then I noticed that you could do the the painting also on subway trains. Uh, and uh, then I really started uh, uh, being interested. Uh, and then I went from primary school to uh, uh, to high school. And then I met some guys that were um, a few years further in this, uh, in this thinking about graffiti. And uh, I could team up with them. And that all of a sudden opened a complete new book. Um, so I continued doing that till I was, I think, 17 or, and then I got busted for uh, painting a train uh, and that mm -hmm. uh, led to quite a big fine. And uh, then I promised uh, my mother to not do any illegal stuff anymore. Uh, and, and this was in Amsterdam? This is where you grew up? No, this was in uh, uh, Den Bosch, that is a, a southern city in the but yeah, in the Netherlands, it was an hour south from Amsterdam. So mm. that is a, a small town. Mm. Yeah. Of course, over the years, um, also my perspective uh, on this constantly changed. Um, so, of course, I uh, I see the the bad side of it, um, and I've also met um, uh, youngsters just like me that were just trashing things uh, and not only doing graffiti but also just demolishing public property in many very in many ways and uh, uh, and acted like a rebel so to say against society and when you then gradually turn into an architect your perspective also changes um, um, on this matter and now I separate actually the the artistic part from the uh, let's say the more uh the downside of it um and mm. i think i have learned quite a lot about color um uh, about form uh about 2d 3d about also the moments of excitement uh and that that helps me also uh, uh, a lot i never did any attempt to to uh, connect uh, graffiti with uh, architecture. Um, mm -hmm. I did see some attempts here in the Netherlands, uh, but I was never convinced actually. I also think it's 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 something you do when you're young, you mm -hmm. enjoy it a lot, mm. and then you grow up and you, you carry it with you as a precious, uh, uh, as something precious, mm. but not something I would like to, let's say, explain the building as a letter form for example no yeah and i don't think i'd ever want to to force that relationship either no but good there is something <laughs> but i do want to i do want to dwell on it a little longer i just mm -hmm. guess from my own curiosity mm -hmm. um i mean there's a kind of a hint at an interest in uh 
letter form in the logo of Monadnock, which is some kind of composite M. Um, but also this interest in surfaces. Um, and as you mentioned, color. What kind of tags were you making though? And again, I'm not, maybe I'll cut this out, but I just, I don't want to overemphasize this part of your life uh, <laughs> because as you say, it's part of your adolescence and more to do maybe with the kind of youthful rebellion that we're all familiar with mm -hmm. in some way. Mm -hmm. But like, were you tagging names or were they murals? Were they done in response to other graffiti? How much in dialogue were you with other uh, graffiti? Uh, yeah, well, totally. Um, mm. I was completely in, in the scene, in the Dutch scene, but also at a certain point in, uh, visible in the, in the European uh, uh, scene in contact with people from Paris, Munich. And, and these were murals, yes. And, uh, and the tagging was, was uh, less interesting uh, because, uh, um, yeah, that's that's for getting up and being seen uh, in a very quick snack uh, uh, snackish way. But uh, mm -hmm. a mural is a is a piece is a, is a, um, is a is a way of showing off your creativity uh, mm. in in the use of color and also in the connections between the letters. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, and that was a dialogue indeed. The only reason for doing that out. Uh, and not on my room on a, in a sketchbook was to be in dialogue and to be seen and, and be in dialogue with other uh, graffiti artists. A bit the thing that architects also tend to do, being in dialogue with each other mm -hmm. <laughs> about very nerdish stuff. <laughs> and that is really beautiful, um, but uh, that's not interesting for everyone. Hmm. Yeah. In one of your early essays, it was published in OESA in 2008, um, mm -hmm. you mentioned the term old school, the hip hop term old school. And the way I'm just quoting you here now, it encapsulates precisely an attitude that expresses an appreciation for the old and the existent, provided that it's translated into the here and now and developed further. And I feel like maybe this is a hinge from your early experience with graffiti and this more kind of general idea of being in conversation uh, with historic forms <laughs> as a leap into a discussion about architecture. Um, because in the lectures you've given since and the writing you've done, there is a real emphasis on history, tradition, continuity, but in a way that um, refuses to be conservative. And I think looking at a lot of your work, there is a sense of real novelty, despite the fact that there are clear historical associations being made. And I mean, maybe we should talk more about that idea of the old school, <laughs> maybe as it relates to the subject of that essay in particular, which is really, I think, establishing the direction of your practice as it was emerging. Um, and in specific relationship to one particular building, which of course is the, the namesake of the practice, the Manadnock building. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so why don't you tell me more about the Manadnock? Ah, good. Well, I'm still doing discoveries on a, 
well, let's say on a monthly basis about this building. Um, so there's a very practical side to it. Um, if you decide that you want to start a, a business together, a firm, a club, um, we were with three. And you search for a name, you want to have a name that is distinctive and not only your last names, for example, at least that didn't match that well. Um, and then um, we decided that we would search for a very beautiful building that inspires us. And then we bumped into books uh, where we found the Monetno building and thought this is incredible uh, because we started first, uh, uh, this it started as a visual attraction. And then when we started reading about it, we got even more enthusiastic. So. And then we discovered uh, uh, the many layers the building actually uh, uh, carries or has uh, intrinsically. And then we found out that it, this would actually be a very good carrier uh, for our thinking about architecture, that it matched. And this is not something that happened overnight. <laughs> mm -hmm. This, of course, is a, is a gradual process. And um, I'm, I'm sticking, um, no, I'm piling I'm piling I'm still piling arguments on, on top of that uh, uh, mountain um, mm. because I'm still finding out things. Um, there's also a shift where we in the beginning fell completely in love with the brick part only, then so the northern part by Burnham and uh, Root, and then it gradually shifted also to appreciation for the whole building as a more help carrier to talk about uh, um, uh, the way we would like to uh, deal with uh, uh, architecture and, and history in architecture. Um, the story is much more um, intriguing when you uh, take the whole building into consideration. Mm. Would it, this be something I need to further explain? Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I suspect a lot of people listening will be familiar with it, but also um, Maybe not. And no. what's maybe helpful to do is, um, I guess, situate it a little bit. So this is a building in Chicago that yeah. was built in the 1890s. Um, and it's a Janus-faced building in a way. There's two parts to it. Uh, on the one hand, it's this solid masonry building, one of the tallest masonry buildings in the world. And on the other... It's a, is it a steel frame yes. construction? Yes. And that, that side of the building, I think, gets less attention. In fact, I wasn't really aware of that side of the building until I heard you talk about it elsewhere. Um, but when it's taken together, these two parts, which are designed by different architecture firms, um, it's a building that's full of contradictions. And it's a building that offers up, um, I guess, a comparative analysis of what architecture can be. Um, and so it makes so much sense that this building can hold so many ideas, sometimes contradictory ideas at once. Um, and I mean, what was exciting to me about first finding out about your practice and the fact that you named it after a building is that you rarely, if ever, encounter that. I can't think of any other office who's 
name themselves after another architect's work. <laughs> and it made me so happy. <laughs> That's good news. Yes. Um, because mm -hmm. in a way it, um, it speaks to this real sense of joy and enthusiasm for architecture. Um, which supersedes the ego of the individual architect. And in all the lectures I've watched from you, um, you really feel that come through, that there's this deep excitement about architecture um, that's beyond, beyond you in a way. <laughs> um, so I feel like it's just important to, to put that out there that... Um, there's something kind of weird going on with Monadnock, both as a practice and as a building. And maybe we could talk more about the, the ideas that you first established, the kind of foundational agenda of the practice as it relates to this specific building. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, first, thank you. Um, for your uh, a, a clear uh, uh, expression of appreciation, um, that, that's uh, that's very uh, uh, pleasant to hear. I I think um, I think that article was a real uh, hard moment uh, to write um, something about your practice that was just I think existing for two years, uh, so we did not really have a lot uh, uh, other than ambitions, uh, and then. Um, this uh, um, in this article we we uh, we tried to formulate a couple of things and one was a very strong um, undogmatic approach of of history and being undogmatic was an important element because we were educated in such a way that uh, uh, well modernism was something that was uh, cherished uh, and embraced fully and therefore. Um, all the rest was old and therefore less interesting. And that was something that we tried to uh, uh, counter. And I think we used um, examples for that um, to establish an idea about how you could do architecture then. And I remember in this OASA architect, uh, article to also mention the Grundformen of uh, uh, Bernd und Hilla Becher, the, uh, the photographers from uh, a couple from Germany um, that made these beautiful pictures of, uh, um, of industrial heritage, um, always in a very similar way, very dry, calm, uh, mm -hmm. frontal uh, with this with the same uh, light conditions also. And um, what was so striking for us is, uh, is that this, these Grundformen, uh, ground figures, I think that would be the probably the right translation or basic figures, uh, that these, these were for us a, a way to, um, to think about coherence in architecture. And that was also something that was uh, um, uh, important for us. Um, and then I think once you have opened the box of history, 
you gradually start uh, exploring more and more and more throughout through, throughout the years. And then you notice that saying history is actually the beginning of a conversation um, which covers almost everything in the past. Mm-hmm. And um, that actually forces you to be more precise um, in formulating which history you actually mean. Um, mm-hmm. And then it's really helpful to use examples. And I think um, then the easiest example for us was always to start a conversation with the Monadnock building. Um, but of course, there were always groups of friends um, uh, around us, um, hypothetical friends, so to say. Um, and some of them left the table uh, and some of them came back to the table uh, and some of them stayed at the table <laughs> or <laughs> remained there for a, for, for, a, uh, for a long time. And the way you have just... Uh, um, described um, the the joy for um, uh, history um, has also um, for us um, been quite a bumpy road because um, also in the Netherlands, but I'm sure you are familiar with it in the UK, it was not um, very easy to position yourself in a in a field where on one hand you have let's say the architects that really want to be contemporary and on the other hand architects that really want to be traditional um, and that's almost an unexplainable position when you say i don't want to be this and i don't want to be that that's mm. not really you described a similar attention that you experienced as a student as well where there almost seem to be camps of teachers and some teachers you would categorize as traditionalists and others as futurists in a way or interested in novelty the kind of novelty that we'd understand as being associated with this term super dutch um and you kind of found yourself in the middle of that uh, yes but i think um that there was something in between that is also worth mentioning and that is mm. that um, um in um well both Sander and me, we did our um, um, we did our studies on an academy of fine arts. So um, that means that we first had other ambitions to not necessarily to become an architect. I actually wanted to become an artist, a painter, um, and then then I noticed that there were other things that also interested me. So that and for Sander, he wanted to actually be a car designer, um, and then. He also gradually shifted uh, to other fields. Um, hmm. But this um, this environment of an academy of fine arts is an environment that is emphasizing uh, the visual aspects of life uh, enormously. Um, so um, that is, I think, uh, also reflecting in uh, in in the way we deal with architecture um, that we are less interested in the uh, in the puzzle perhaps of the uh, of the program um, of course we make sure it works uh, of course we also rationalize the plans um, but uh, our excitement uh, uh, goes more towards the whole appearance uh, of the building um, actually first also um, 
during these uh, studies on the Academy of Fine Arts, um, there were also um, architects teaching um, from uh, Flanders. And, uh, uh, and this was the first step of opening up the world um, towards more than only uh, being in the bubble of uh, super Dutch. Um, because everybody was talking about SML XL of uh, M. Koolhaas at that time. Um, and I understand why. Um, but at, for us, as, as being young students, um, it was too megalomanic. It was too far away from the craft of building that. And also our comprehension of what a building should do and be about. Um, of course, because we were young, we were not able to zoom out that far as, as REM could at that time. Um, and then in, in Flanders, um, we noticed that, um, um, that um, there were less uh, sharp lines between camps, indeed, um, that things blurred and things were surrealistic and were uh, ambiguous. Um, and that was a very uh, um, uh, interesting period uh, for both Sander and me. Um, and when we started working in the Netherlands then and continued our studies, um, because this was an, uh, uh, an internship, um, then we were back in the, in the bubble of Super Dutch. And in this bubble of Super Dutch, um, yeah, there we could say that there were camps. Um, but during my studies, I could not find a lot of people that were, let's say, in, in the camp of a sort of mild um, and dogmatic approach to architecture in general, um, no matter whether it was old or new. Um, mm. And then I started working at, uh, at uh, Christian Rapp, a, a German architect, and Sander started working at MVRDV. Um, mm. um, so Christian Rapp actually pulled me more towards uh, the, the, the Hans Kohlhoff as, um, um, as an important figure and voice in Europe about how you could deal with architecture. And, um, and for me, that was very inspiring because it was really uh, um, um, all the things that, that I thought you, these are these you can't do because these are too traditional or too classical, all of a sudden change perspective into something which was um, enormously experimental. And, uh, um, and then, and then that also helped me to, um, um, to do a um, more fine or a more refined reading um, of what tradition could be and um, I started to see more gradients actually um, mm -hmm. between uh, good and bad or between um, um, traditional and modern. Mm -hmm. And I noticed that many more people were interested throughout Europe in this. For, for listeners who might not be familiar with Kohlhoff, could you talk about one particular building of his that changed your thinking about architecture? Well, that's that's really easy. Um, thank you for this question because there's the Piraeus building in Amsterdam, mm -hmm. and that was really uh, uh, a shock uh, for me um, because uh, that was really also the first time that I've experienced a shock in architecture um, because. Uh, uh, 
this was a building that was large um, and it was dark uh, and it was not necessarily optimistic at first uh, uh, glance uh, and it was not uh, and simultaneously it was just realized in the 90s in Amsterdam in an in this harbor environment and it mm -hmm. was also containing all kinds of elements that were new <laughs> I just just to, to hold for a second I want to encourage listeners now to google the building as we talk about it i think it could be really helpful so it's p-i-r-a-e-u-s as the building name and it's by hans kohlhoff it's worth just also in a way referring to the sense of shock that you're describing um yes. which you've called elsewhere the shock of the normal yes <laughs> and kind of antithesis to the shock of the new which is a term we associate with modernism so let's keep going. We're talking in a way about this shock of normality that you experienced when you first encountered the Piraeus building. Mm -hmm. Yes, because um, it was clear that Kohlhoff was using all the, the grammar of the alphabet that we are also familiar with, that he was using conventional tools, but then did things with it like a gate he stretched the gate out over i don't know uh, uh six floors uh um and and all of a sudden it became hugely monumental so by changing proportions a bit uh or exaggerating proportions um but also piling things up or stacking things on top of each other like typologies um uh, typologies of circulation and then all stuffing them in this body of this uh, of this building, um, and then reaching a balance which, on one hand, had a very absolute appearance and very clear silhouette and a very clear appearance from far away. And when you would approach this building, you would see more and more and more details and more variation and more alliterations, and that and also uh, ambiguity actually that it would become harder to read it as one singular block but it would also start to fall apart in a pleasant way by the way and well, not, not no that's wrong it would never fall apart but it would mm -hmm. contain more much more richness than you would see uh, at first sight so um um, treatment of the facade, um, um, but also entrances, um, uh, the plinth of the building having uh, where the shops were um, very clear referencing to the Amsterdam school buildings that are so preciously kept in Amsterdam, um, but also a very, very solid and bold harbor building that wants to be grand and big and brutal. Um, and all these combinations um, and then using um, a Hagemeister brick, a very hard clinker brick from uh, uh, from Germany, combining this with a, uh, a very thin aluminium roof, um, <laughs> which would reflect the sun in such a way that it would uh, um, do the, the, the counter that would be countering all the heaviness of the walls. Um, so there were a lot of, um, uh, there's so much in this in this building uh, mm. that it uh, uh, it was shocking for me that you could actually do such a thing uh, mm -hmm. to be 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 so much embracing history while I had been taught to uh, 
to be modern and to be contemporary as an architect, I, I saw the joy um, of embracing other things and including them um, in contemporary architecture. Mm. And that Kohlhof, that Pires building was the, the bomb. Yeah. <laughs> the way you're describing it, it's a very finely calibrated kind of reference. Mm. Um, and you've, you've explained elsewhere that Learning from the past is a vehicle to embed and connect with the present, which might help to make architecture more understandable to a wider audience. The more interesting question is how much of the past should resonate? And the way you describe the Pires building, it's really about nuance and subtlety and rewarding the viewer and the occupant and the visitor and whoever else encounters this building um, in whatever medium they encounter it, with a with um, a kind of slow revelation, <laughs> and insisting on patience <laughs> and attentiveness and a careful and considered reading in a way, but and I mean this this kind of principle. Um, applies as much to reading itself, I think, as it does to architecture. And there are these tricks at play um, that seduce the viewer or the, the user, let's call them, into an acknowledgement of the building and awareness of it in the first place, but then a continued um, fixation with it. And it's that same fixation that I think um, you're describing with the Manadnock building itself that over time, over literally more than a decade now, you've been drawn to this building and it continues to reveal itself to you and continues to accommodate additional layers of interpretation. And so it would be a gross oversimplification to, to call that kind of architecture traditionalism or uh, on the other hand, um, something that's entirely um, interested in novelty. Instead, it sounds like you're interested in the ambiguity itself. more about this idea of re referencing history um, as it's began to manifest in the more recent teaching you've done. So last year you led a studio at the Harvard uh, Graduate School of Design which was titled Emulatio, Emulatio, which is Latin for emulation. Yes. Can you talk more about this idea of emulation and how it figures in the teaching you were doing there? Yes, I think you um, formulated the, the, the question in your previous comment very clearly. So how much of the past should you take with you to mm. the present? And, um, and then by reading a bit, you find out that this is a... Um, is this is a reoccurring question um, 
that already was there during Renaissance um, and that there was a distinction being made um, and not only in architecture because of the, the Renaissance, every, everything blurred um, or everybody wanted to do everything. <laughs> and uh, um, so in poetry and, and writing and, and, and painting, there was this understanding and therefore and literature and also therefore uh, for architecture, uh, as I understood it, there was this understanding of that it was a virtue to copy somebody, that it was actually a compliment. Um, and so the whole perspective of, of duplication was different and that was a, uh, um, a, a way of learning um, and and uh, building up a conversation. So there was um, uh, there were three steps as I understood. Um, um, and emulatio was actually the um, the highest step you could achieve. That would be that you would not only duplicate or imitate. Um, but that you would also try to improve or bring it a step further. Let's make it more neutral. Um, and that is, that is, I think, what is interesting um, uh, about uh, dealing with the past in architecture. If you recycle uh, motives and elements, um, that first gives you a perfect toolbox um, to solve all kinds of problems that you encounter during uh, the making of a building. So that's a very almost practical side. But then that would make it a very simple ABC uh, sort of uh, a trick. And that is, I think, not what architecture is about. It should also be rooted and it should also be communicating uh, with a context, uh, a narrow or a wider context. Um, and that is, I think, where emulatio could step in, um, because that's where you um, try to formulate your own artistic agenda um, or architectural agenda. Let's call it that way. Um, that it um, that it offers you the possibility to make interpretations um, that slightly start stepping away from the original. And I think that's where it really starts to become interesting, mm -hmm. um, because that leads us back to your question. I like the conflation you just made of artistic versus architectural. Mm -hmm. um, and I wonder if we could just briefly um, step off this track of your teaching, your recent teaching, and talk about uh, construction for a second. Mm -hmm. Nice. Because <laughs> <Yes. laughs> I've heard you describe your approach to construction or Monadnock's approach to construction as Semperian. And I wondered if you could elaborate on that description, because to me, um, it speaks more to this idea of uh, architecture as an art or something that's uh, surface driven in a way. Mm -hmm. Yes, I. there was a lot of hesitation in me uh, for a long time to, to say to to confirm uh, <laughs> this, but I, I think you're right. Uh, I think. Um, um, what I learned from Adolf Loos is that, and also from Semper, but more from Adolf Loos, uh, is that you can let the construction follow the figure um, and that construction should help 
to keep the rock up. So uh, the way uh, Semper has explained it. Um, mm. But first you have the rock, so to say. So first mm -hmm. you have the the overall. Um, first you try to define what the performance of the building should be, and then you try to to solve it. And of course, don't misunderstand me. These are all um, nuances. It it doesn't mean that we make highly irrational uh, structures uh, or constructions, um, but it's not it's not something we start with. We don't start with the wish to make a logical construction. No, we start to, with the wish to make a, a logical character of a building. Mm. And then the, the construction should help us. Mm -hmm. um, and that is also something I indeed, for example, learned from also from Kohlhoff. Um, in the practice of Kohlhoff, you start with the, um, the mask towards the public. Um, the, perform the public performance of the building, and then you solve everything behind it. Um, and mm -hmm. uh, well, the more complex the building gets, the di more difficult it is to work in this method. Uh, we are also experiencing this ourselves now. Um, the perfect example, I guess, to complement what you're talking about. And again, I just love this idea that people, I don't know why I haven't done it more in the past, but people could be looking at images as we're talking. and. The, maybe the one image to point listeners towards is um, the landmark building in New Bergen, which you've also described as a process of making a mask um, or kind of creating a symbol or billboard almost. And um, like in the tower, I guess, as well as the trade building itself, you have these really exotic bonds of brickwork uh, that as you say, appear as a kind of carpet almost, or, or pure surface in a way. And then the construction behind is simply facilitating it. But um, this is a kind of, I guess, working example, <clears throat> working example of what you're describing. Mm -hmm. what, I can t what I can tell about that um, um, is that, about the landmark building is that the building started started off with being completely in a steel structure, um, which would be the fastest way to elevate a building like this. And then the constructor made, of course, uh, diagonals um, to stiffen the whole construction. And then he got worried about the wind load on the tower. Um, so more diagonals appeared and uh, but we had already designed, of course, the facades. Um, and uh, then we had diagonals in front of the windows. Uh, and then we uh, insisted um, to get rid of these. Um, and then the constructor actually shifted towards an in-situ port concrete um, um, base with a steel frame for the tower on top. Um, which is beautiful because that completely matches our idea of stacking things on top of each other. Um, so we were very happy for two reasons. So the stacking, but also uh, the disappearance of, uh, <laughs> of the diagonals. Um, mm. And this in, in situ poured concrete was of course completely flush. Um, now, if you want to be honest in an uh, in 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 a certain way, that would really that would end up with making facades that would then also be flush or relating to what is behind. 
Um, but actually the relief or the plasticity in the facade is brought in for completely other reasons. It's not resonating the construction at all. It is actually brought in um, because we needed a scale element um, because we saw that the building would become too abstract without plasticity um, and that the depth or the relief of the relief of the windows could not um, take care of this on their own. Mm. We really needed a grid, so to say. Mm -hmm. What I'm thinking of now is potentially a certain kind of pressure that your practice might, or practices like yours, might be facing now. Um, and when I say practices like yours, I mean practices that, um, in a way, prioritize form and the kind of visual expression of a building um, and allow that to lead the project, um, prioritize cultural reference as well. These are all vital and really critical elements, obviously. But do you start to feel um, a pressure to, to find new priorities or parallel priorities as far as environmentalism go? Because um, I imagine there's a, there's a kind of stream to, or maybe another way of putting it is, there's, a, there's an increasingly urgent need to, I guess, reconsider our priorities. And does that come at the expense of this kind of process of image making that um, you're interested in? That, that is a real good question. Um, I think um, of course there's a critical side to, to if you learn from the past, you detach a lot of meaning and cultural and context and um, the context of a society in which something has has been uh, realized. Um, so there is a sort of perversity also to it to only take the image and then sort of reuse it. Um, I, 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 I feel that, but I also think that, and that is almost I, I would call it the techniques of form. Um, there is so much knowledge and richness in these forms in how you can deal with a banal corner problem um, that I feel free uh, to act this way. And um, I also have the feeling that implementing uh, current issues in this, uh, uh, in this uh, modus operandi is something we we at the moment are, are constantly doing, and that that is where the critique could be. We do not prioritize it as a as a flagship. Um, so currently, we are going to build a building, a housing building, completely in a wood uh, structure um, with a lot of solar panels uh, on the roof and with a, a beautiful uh, drainage system that. Uh, recycles the water um, and uh, avoids uh, the drying uh, the drying out of the soil uh, during the uh, the warm months of the year 
Um, it also houses a lot of insects and, uh, and, and possibilities for birds. Not only that, it also um, provides for uh, collective places for the inhabitants and also collective places for the people in the neighborhood. And by not prioritizing this as a, as a well, perhaps a sort of selling point, um, there, from our side, there is no critique. Um, we just see it as something we uh, embrace with enthusiasm. It doesn't seem to have uh, that many consequences for uh, the, the approach we are currently uh, um, yeah, working with. So, um, and it's also, some, it's also nothing we try to hide. Um, um, but we indeed do not feel the urge to make um, um, to make flagships out of these uh, uh, elements, um, and which are very relevant and very uh, urgent indeed. Um, but as you mentioned yourself, um, uh, architect for architecture. One of the approaches in architecture, and that's where I'm, uh, uh, I'm, I, I feel comfortable with, is that it's it's something slow, um, and it is also something that requires patience. Um, so I'd rather incorporate things that that uh, um, that are urgent, so to say, um, than making them, um, yeah, the headline of. Uh, uh, of the design motive, so to say, because that is a bit what we also learned from the super Dutch generation, making um, diagrams and datascapes um, completely based on uh, uh, technolo technological uh, developments. Um, mm -hmm. So going back to the, if you allow me going back to the, to the Monetnok building, it's, it's, Describing it in a different way, it's a mute container um, that allows life to go through, um, and that is actually also how I would like to uh, uh, approach architecture in general. Um, and that doesn't mean it it cannot be specific. Um, um, it just means that uh, um, that that it can also be. Um, rather undisturbed, um, uh, I would say. That, that's a bit how I would like to explain it. Uh, mm -hmm. And of course, it should absorb uh, a, a lot of things that we feel are, are necessary currently. So mm -hmm. that means probably detaching it slightly from uh, uh, contemporary uh, uh, needs, um, because they will change uh, over time. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't mind if, if over over, over time we had this discussion in the park pavilion. Um, um, the solar panels would be uh, placed on the golden roof, um, and they would be quite horrible, uh, to my opinion. So, mm -hmm. I am sure that in a couple of years we will have solar panels that uh, completely blend in uh, uh, with whatever material. Um, or that we uh, that our techno mm. technologies will develop further. So they are now, of course, they're on the roof, but they're invisible. Um, um, so it just requires uh, a proper design to embed all these things. Uh, mm -hmm. I think, mm -hmm. not denying them, but just embed them.
Mm-hmm. That the technology isn't necessarily something that um, is is telegraphed by the building. <laughs> exactly, it's not driving the form. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I like this idea of slowness in architecture, or in, indeed a slow architecture. Um, and it brings me to this question about how architecture ought to survive in a digital culture. And this brings us back to image making. You're smiling. <laughs> I'm smiling because I, I was expecting this question a bit. Uh-huh. Indeed. <laughs> and it's... <clears throat> well, there was a, a friend of mine, um, a, a painter, and that said, I think it was uh, probably 15 years ago, and he said, I just continue painting, and I feel that my paintings should be able to survive in this digital age. It's not, it's not for me a reason to stop using the technique of painting. It is perhaps influences the choice of uh, subjects, um, but uh, uh, the technique of uh, putting paint on a canvas is, is still challenging for me um, and is still a technique that I feel uh, comfortable with. And then I was, then I was thinking, this is also something that we could uh, uh, re- relate to, to to architecture and um, and image making in architecture. Um, but also, I thought, what what really triggered me was that I thought architecture, no matter how slow it is, it takes two years to realize a building. If I tell this to my graphic design friends they're mm-hmm. they're done with their job in a in a day or a week mm-hmm. um and a long project lasts half a year um so uh and i think um, that architecture should be able to be visible and maintain itself in a digital environment and therefore we need to make very clear buildings i think um that um has have a, a first level of attraction and uh, gratification even but um, let us not make the mistake that um, that is sufficient, <laughs> <laughs> because then I think um, the second level or the third level or the fourth level or perhaps ten levels should still be apparent and um, uh, should actually uh, make us all return to uh, uh, to these buildings. Um, so on Instagram, it's completely it's completely fine with me that we. Uh, share images there. Um, I also enjoy it a lot, um, but I never make the mistake of uh, having the impression that I ha- that I know the building, that I have seen the building. Mm-hmm. Um, and perhaps, uh, um, and I think uh, architecture can only maintain itself in this digital environment if it has more to tell, um, mm-hmm. if it has more layers of complexity. Uh, so the way you just described the Piraeus building, or um, how you read my comments uh, up, was actually um, that it unfolds itself slowly. And I think um, that is an ambition uh, for us uh, when we work on these uh, buildings, mm-hmm. that it's not the instant gratification of only one image that is uh, valid, and for the rest, it actually doesn't matter any longer. Uh, that would that would be a pity, yeah. Mm. Just keeping on with the subject of teaching, I read that you have 
an exercise you use when you teach a studio to dispel the myth of originality or novelty in students. Mm -hmm. Could you walk me through that exercise? <laughs> uh, I cannot re literally describe this exercise, but what we do is we, during a studio, we do very short exercises um, and, and, and longer exercises. And in these short exercises, we try to, um, yeah, to, <laughs> to bring the joy of, of, of making quick decisions. Um, so in, instead of uh, uh, circling around something for a very long time, we, we actually ask the students to make decisions within uh, sometimes one hour, sometimes half a day, sometimes uh, uh, 24 hours, but very condensed and, and short. And um, norm, we tend to ask quite big questions then. Uh, um, and that is, um, and that also sometimes uh, uh, forces them to really make use of, of existing uh, uh, things that we have shown, of course. Um, and so there's not a, a direct exercise that cracks the myth of originality, but it's something mm -hmm. I, of course, mention uh, because I. Um, I, I think during my studies, there was a lot of uh, misunderstanding uh, uh, about this. Um, and I think that that has changed. Um, and, but I think it's still worth to, to tell this to students um, that um, originality, um, yeah, from the thinking of emulatio, it actually is something that arrives when you work hard and uh, when you take a lot of uh, uh, things into account that, uh, that have that, that were already around, uh, uh, so to say, mm -hmm. um, motives, mm -hmm. architectural motives. And perhaps it's in the, it's in the combination where originality might uh, uh, surface then. Um, but let's not make that uh, the goal uh, of everything. I mean, mm -hmm. um, it, um, yeah, I, I should be careful not to, to start a long complain but i live in the city of rotterdam um, and i keep it compact and we have originality almost on every corner um and uh it's really unpleasant uh, mm. to be slapped in the face with all the uh let's say unsuccessful attempts of originality by architects um I, it really makes you long for uh um well um for a sort of discipline um, that makes that has an understanding of what a street um, means in the whole fabric of the city. Is it really an important street that it needs to tower this tall? Um, or could it also be a secondary or a tertiary street with a lower building? Um, shouldn't the high building be on a special place instead of just randomly placed uh, all mm -hmm. over um, mm. things like that is that classical um, uh, Matthew <laughs> I I mean I'm just reminded of uh, an interview you gave recently in drawing matters pan scroll zoom series and I'm just going to quote you back to yourself because it's a, it's essentially building on what you're talking about now and you said I would rather aim for a more general shared mutual understanding of a discipline and of order among architects instead of everyone constantly making exceptions the world doesn't need cities and streets full of exceptions and there's something like wonderfully curmudgeonly about that 
there's something really cranky about that that I love because when I look at your buildings, they're all, and there's no, there's no debate. I'm sorry, but they're all exceptional. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and yeah, uh, okay, Th yes. Uh, I understand that Th this is you're you're not the first one confronting <laughs> confronting me with this. Um, um, well, um, to quote Kohlhoff again, um, um, back to Kohlhoff. I mean, um, uh, in, in Rotterdam we have a, a city of objects. Shouldn't we first work a bit longer on the streets uh, instead of making more objects? Because I find it a bit of a false um, uh, argument, but I, nevertheless, I'm going to use it. Um, the majority of the Dutch people does not sincerely appreciate visiting Rotterdam for the cozy city, uh, because the majority of Dutch people uh, visit, um, let's say, the old towns uh, of Utrecht and Amsterdam, uh, cozy city centers with small shops um, and which are eyes closed. You can closed you can find the, the central station the market square the town hall uh it has this very logic way of reading now i am not saying that every city in the in in the netherlands or even in europe or in the world should look like this um but it's very clearly that we uh, lack a bit of that in rotterdam um and that makes me say such things um mm -hmm. that it's really helpful to understand what the basic order of the city is. And it really matters, um, I think, because if we go, for example, if we visit Brussels, then Brussels is a, is a city of, for example, in general, of five layer, five stories high. That really gives a grandeur to the city. That's really different from Amsterdam, for example. That's a lower city um, and more a city made out of houses, uh, single houses. and. And I think it's good to be able to describe the city in such a in such a way. What what a couple of general uh, principles of order are for a city. Um, and of course, that that doesn't mean that there cannot be exceptions. But um, and that is a, that is a bit what I miss in, uh, mm. in, uh, in 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 Rotterdam. But I also see this um, happening in. Uh, um well in perhaps a, a bit some more cities throughout europe where i i see the pressure uh on cities um uh rising um and uh well the the, the inner cities uh, seem to become uh, festival terrains um for architecture but also for um uh, for visitors um and uh, not, not so much uh, for inhabitants uh, any longer. Uh, so there are a couple of motives and urgencies that I uh, I, I see there. Um, and um, um, I think it's impossible to make a sort of uh, um, um, book of rules for uh, or a manual uh, uh, for the city. Um, 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 at, in, the, in these times, I mean, um, because um, um, there is so much heterogeneity. Um, but I think it's good to make places with identity. And in an area with a, an identity, there could be more buildings of a certain kind. And that would perfectly allow also a city of objects um, 
or a piece of the city, which is made out of objects, of course. Um, also parts of Rome are made of objects um, and, uh, uh, and beautiful. Um, so I think um, um, it's, it's probably the dominance uh, that is uh, making me cranky indeed. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's a question I wanted to ask um, uh, when we were talking about this idea of emulation um, that you're teaching uh, or is guiding your current teaching. And it's a question about what counts or what is, what is valuable and what is worth emulating in the first place. Um, and I want to understand a little more the value system that you're working with when you decide what precedents to hold up and what trusted friends, as you've referred to them in the past, uh, um, in terms of architectural references or architects, you'd introduce to students to begin to emulate. On the process of choosing, well, that is, of course, a dialogue and a debate with the, with the student then, um, um, because indeed, there are uh, groups of solutions and answers that um, I don't find adequate myself. Um, so I disqualify them um, as, a, as a tutor indeed, um, because I don't find them relevant. Um, and um, if we then go to, um, to, to a group of trusted friends, well, I must, I must admit that uh, in, the, in the last uh, two years or, or perhaps four years, it becomes increasingly difficult to to outline that um, because it explodes. Um, and I, uh, uh, well, it just um, um, perhaps also leads back to uh, one of, uh, of the comments I made in the beginning um, about Super Dutch that also, although I'm, I'm, I'm bashing them a bit, uh, there's also a growing appreciation for the daringness and the brutality um, that this generation had. I mean, I think it's very important to mention another thing, um, and that is that um, in the end, I noticed that the super Dutch generation were all having a, a, an agenda. Uh, and I'm, I feel myself now, and I'm not, not uh, uh, I'm not disqualifying all the Dutch architects, but uh, a lot of uh, Dutch architects are, since the financial crisis, uh, being completely occupied by the, being an entrepreneur. And, and being an entrepreneur requires being flexible and servicing, and uh, that is good. Uh, but um, uh, an agenda is not helpful uh, then. Um, mm. And that's something I regret. So mm. I see a loss, an erosion of uh, uh, of uh, um, of architectural culture uh, in the Netherlands, and perhaps it's ha it's happening all over Europe. Um, uh, but um, um, this super Dutch um, generation was was making agenda, was having a, an agenda, uh, and uh, that that brings them for me on the if we divide the world into two pieces. That makes mm. them <laughs> being on the good side, <laughs> mm. because uh, having no agenda is, I think, uh, uh, completely uninteresting uh, 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 in architecture. I think this is the part in the conversation where I ask, "What's next?" Thinking about how 
how you've presented the work of the practice over the past, I don't know, let's say five years. Um, and this is the case with, I think, most, if not all architects, that there is a lecture that everyone has that gets refined and, and evolves um, through repetition. And it becomes this kind of finely polished stone that one turns over in their hand. Um, but it seems like the work that's presented in those kinds of lectures is part of the practice's archive now. And it, from mm -hmm. the way you're talking about um, these kind of new projects, it sounds like there's a, there's a next chapter in the practice that has not, has kind of, that is yet to be kind of aired publicly or discussed um, in any kind of public forum. And I wonder if you would be comfortable to talk more about what is happening now out of sight. Yeah, that's a good idea. Um, well, the projects are growing um, and that is exactly where we wanted to be, to make buildings that um, have an influence on, on the city or the scale of a street. Um, and um, it also means that the buildings um, are not always in the role of being exceptional. Uh, sometimes you just have to obey to the city fabric. Um, and there's also um, an, a difference in content, I think, or a shift, a gradual shift in content um, that for us in the beginning, this Monatnok building was also uh, attractive because it was such a solid uh, building that was standing firmly on the ground and was this also this aspect of being on the ground and being solid was very important um, but therefore i also mentioned that the the shift towards the appreciation of both sides uh, of the building uh, grew and also in our practice um, i discovered that um, something like which is not so solid and which is more breathing and is more uh, composed and is more of an assemblage um, could uh, opens up a complete new spectrum uh, of possibilities for us um, where the word coherence um, was always for us implying that it should be continuous in one material or one type of expression um, i would say now coherence um, also opened up towards um, assemblage as perhaps um, uh, postmodernity uh, uh, brought it um, and um, a lot of words and 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 things that we find intriguing in architecture were were literally Part of the discourse during postmodernity and um, in, in the 80s. And I am often wondering if you step away from, let's say, the somewhat artificial appearance of um, uh, some of these buildings. Um, and then I specifically mean the sort of denial of the making. Um, if, you, if you strip that off or, or take that away, then uh, I think a lot of uh, topics are, are for me very relevant um, and uh, very, well, 
urgent is perhaps a bit too much, but uh, relevant and um, really require a new take. Um, um, and I have the feeling that um, um, that we, since the 80s, have learned um, a, a bit more um, about how we could make tangible and tactile buildings. Um, and I think that would be um, uh, a very welcome uh, perspective on the debate of postmodernity, um, because um, making images, masks, symbols, and uh, assembling things would not necessarily uh, deny the idea of uh, craftsmanship or uh, tangible, uh, refined, uh, and elegant buildings. And I think, um, well, this is something that for me is quite thrilling and uh, exciting uh, uh, at the moment. So if you're asking on a content level what's next, then this is something that is on our tables. And that, that also brings us to people that were not on our table before, uh, uh, Frank Geary, um, uh, but also, which is not a real surprise perhaps, uh, but also uh, uh, Dixon Jones, for example, um, mm -hmm. uh, that's closer to where you are. Um, and at a certain point, um, I also noticed that um, the definition of who the guests or heroes on the table are becomes perhaps a bit of uh, uh, less importance um, because uh, it becomes a, a mixture or of many figures um, at the same time. But for me, it was a real discovery um, after um, holding on to a vocabulary of uh, solidity uh, to make a shift to something that is assembled um, and finding out that that was also a motive that existed already many, 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 many decades. Um, and uh, uh, and perhaps that also opens up the, the, the world of modern architecture uh, uh, more um, modernistic, I mean, then. Uh, and, uh, That's really interesting that modernism now becomes a historical period ripe for emulation. Yes, because, because of course, it starts um, well, it starts with the joy of the and the enthusiasm of the discovery of new grounds before modernism, um, and we we did not reach the end of this of that field because it's it's without any border, I would say. Mm. But then, why did we why did we leap over uh, modern uh, uh, modernity? Why did we leap over um, modernism? Uh, isn't it fair to also include that? Um, because uh, if if you are in love with architecture, <laughs> you can just <laughs> extend the toolbox also to that field. Why not? Um, mm. And that, but that 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 took a bit of time. Um, and now I I see a, a lot of motives and a lot of yeah architectural motives that try to, for example find a balance between lightness and solidity um, at, the t at the same time, then you first need to be open to, mm. to and, and, and to be willing to see that. Huh? Yeah, thank you so much for this. <laughs> thank you, Matthew. You made it a long stretch. That's very good. <laughs> You've been listening to Scaffold. I'm Matthew Blunderfield, and I produce the show. The theme music is composed and performed by Luke Blair.
Subscribe to Scaffold on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at Scaffold underscore podcast. If you like the show, spread the word and leave a rating on iTunes while you're at it. Thanks to Yab Flores and to the Architecture Foundation for their support. Thanks as always to Scandal Lynn. And thanks to you for listening. I'll see you next week. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit Juvederm.com.